This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. In our last episode, we talked about the need to drastically curb our greenhouse gas emissions. This means we need to decarbonize or reach carbon negativity this century. But before we delve into the ways to achieve this, let's step back and take a look at carbon dioxide. What is it and why is it such a problem? I'm Talib Vizram and you're listening to World Changing Ideas where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. This season, we'll be looking exclusively at climate change and what's being done to try and save the world. Okay, time for some Chemistry 101. Carbon is the fourth most abundant element in the universe, and it can combine with other elements to form molecules. These carbon-based molecules are the basic building blocks of humans, animals, plants, trees, and soils. Now, to clear up any possible confusion, carbon is commonly used as a shorthand for carbon dioxide, or carbon bonded with oxygen, which is a greenhouse gas released by humans. So the question on everyone's minds is, what are we going to do about the estimated 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide, or CO2, that human activities release into the atmosphere every year? The good news is we have options. There's carbon capture, which aims to draw the carbon dioxide from, say, a smokestack when you're burning coal or natural gas. So that's more about trying to slow the rate at which greenhouse gases are entering the atmosphere. And then there's carbon removal. In broad terms, carbon removal is about trying to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, where it's a greenhouse gas causing climate change. Uh, taking that carbon dioxide and putting it into long-term storage or putting it into some sort of productive use. So carbon removal, if it works, uh, would reduce the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's Simon Nicholson. He's an associate professor in the School of International Service at American University, and he also directs the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy. Part of the reason global warming has been such a complicated issue to tackle is that it's a bit nebulous. A little bit of gas doesn't weigh much. When you're breathing out, you don't kind of notice that you're, you're putting a heavy object into the atmosphere. And so when you're trying to imagine tons and tons of, the, of these gases going into the atmosphere, it's a mind-boggling notion. But since the evidence is incontrovertible at this point, we need to start buckling down on ways to extract CO2 from our atmosphere. Nicholson suggests thinking about carbon removal like this. It's not just one thing, but rather a portfolio of potential options. On one end of the spectrum, you've got biological or nature-based pathways. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are engineered or mechanical pathways. In terms of the biological pathways, this is anything that kind of grows and draws carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then holds it in biological systems. Right, so things like forests, as trees grow, they draw in carbon dioxide and they hold it in the body of those trees um, or in the soils in which the trees are fixed. As for the more technologically engineered options, there's enhanced mineralization, where various rock formations absorb CO2 from the atmosphere, or direct air capture and storage, 
which is essentially drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through a machine and then taking that carbon dioxide and pushing it underground. About half of the carbon dioxide that gets released today will still be in the atmosphere a thousand years from now. There are lots of other greenhouse gases, uh, gases like methane, nitrous oxides. Collectively, all of these different gases contribute to climate change or global heating. Um, but carbon dioxide is the most important, both because of its volume. There's just a lot of it that gets released through human activities and because of that longevity question. Basically, once carbon dioxide is up there, it tends to stick around. So let's review what we have to do to get all of that out of the air. If we're aiming for net negative emissions later this century, that means society would need to remove more carbon from the atmosphere than it's emitting. First, we need to remove huge amounts of carbon dioxide, and then we need to store that carbon dioxide for a long time. And by a long time, we're talking decades to hundreds of years of storage for it to actually make a difference to climate change. But exactly whether that carbon dioxide is being stored and how much and, and over what time period it's being stored, um, there are lots of kind of questions to ask about that. There's kind of this whole kind of murky industry around carbon removal, which is starting to emerge and actually needs lots of interrogation and lots of analysis so that we get it right. Carbon removal is essential moving forward but there are lots of ways to get it wrong. We should also note here that carbon removal is not a suitable replacement for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. There's something called the moral hazard, which considers that even the possibility of large-scale carbon removal would act sort of like a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to reducing their emissions. But we'll get into that more next week. So for right now, we'll focus on how it's all about balancing the amount of carbon dioxide that's going into the atmosphere and the amount that's coming out. We can set those targets globally. We can set those targets country by country. But ultimately, the action boils down to what corporations, government expenditures and individuals are contributing to this stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So what can companies do? Well, companies are already starting to do a few things. Companies like Stripe, and Microsoft are leading the way by being very clear about the criteria by which they're measuring carbon removal opportunities. Um, asking for really high value, long-term storage, clear monitoring and evaluation of what's going on, right? and trying to kickstart a market um, through being very clear in their investments. But what if companies started earlier in the process, before the emission stage even began? When we come back, we'll hear from someone who's revolutionized an industry that is one of the top carbon emitters after stumbling upon an enzyme while researching cancer treatments. But first, a quick break. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. My guest today is a physician scientist who describes himself as someone who loves to use ideas from different industries and cultures to solve incredibly hard problems. Gaurav Chakrabarti is the CEO and founder of Solugen, a company that uses plant-powered technology to produce molecules more sustainably than traditional chemical companies. Solugen describes itself as the world's first carbon-negative molecule factory. 
And it's also taking on one of the biggest industries with its bio-based approach. And it's using something we're all familiar with, sugar. And so, so you're creating hydrogen peroxide. I think probably most of us have you know, heard of this term, but what is it? What, you know, what is it used for? Why do we need it? Yeah, it's used in everything. So for instance, the, the water that you drank this morning was treated with peroxide. The vegetables and fruit that I hope you ate this morning was, was probably treated and cleaned with hydrogen peroxide. I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> even the plastic in the chair you're sitting in was made with peroxide. Even spaceships, right? Like going to space requires a lot of hydrogen peroxide. So it's used ubiquitously everywhere. It's this invisible, like multi-billion dollar industry that no one really talks about. What's really scary though, is one peroxide plant explodes per year. That's where I got really intrigued to see if there's safer ways to make some of these chemicals like hydrogen peroxide. So can you kind of walk us through the process? You know, how, how do you get to the, to the hydrogen peroxide? Yeah, so I think uh, it, it's quite simple, really. We, we start with the enzyme uh, being fed by sugar. So we feed this enzyme sugar, essentially, and we take air and we bubble the air in to the enzyme. And what the enzyme does is it uses the sugar and the air to make this hydrogen peroxide molecule. It can make other things as well, right? We started with peroxide, but what we discovered is you can make a whole suite of molecules by feeding in sugar and air and changing the properties of the enzyme. So for instance, we started with hydrogen peroxide, but now we can make plastic, uh, building blocks of plastics essentially. And so that's where you could see the versatility of this technology. The petrochemical industry is a major contributor of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. Because solugen uses sugar and other bio-based feedstock instead of petroleum, this not only reduces its CO2 emissions, it eliminates it completely. Yeah, so there's two ways to think about it. Uh, one is what CO2 we're avoiding by using our technology, because fundamentally we're replacing petroleum-based um, materials and chemicals that have pretty strong uh, and, and large carbon footprints. And so from a, just an equivalence point of view, uh, we completely demolish the competition in terms of CO2. The other way to look at it is the technology that we're working on where we use carbon dioxide directly as the feedstock and make the molecule. So essentially it is carbon negative in the balance because you take CO2 away from the atmosphere and let it be sequestered into the material or chemical that you're using. Why is something like this better than, say, fermentation, which is also probably, you know, better than kind of the, the old ways of, of doing things, right? Yeah, I, I look at the evolution of, of materials processing like this, right? There's petrochemistry, there's fermentation, and then there's solutions, bioforge, right? Where fermentation plays, it is better than petrochemistry in certain aspects. But what people don't talk about is that these cells, they're breathing too, right? And when you breathe, you're releasing CO2. So fundamentally, if you look at any fermentation process, the carbon dioxide that's been emitted is actually pretty massive uh, relative to the product that you're making. In fact, in ethanol mills that use fermentation, one third of their output is CO2. Everything that we do uh, is water-based. So nothing we do uses a nasty solvent or anything like that. That's why we can claim uh, zero air emissions, which is dramatically different than a lot of the products on the market who's in a pretty nasty flammable solvent to get their product to the customer. So what kind of products are we talking here? What, what kind of materials are you making? 
Yeah, so right now, water treatment uh, materials. So anything that helps clean up water. So think antimicrobials, think like corrosion inhibition, you know, scale that you see in your bathroom, hmm. the, the little calcium carbonate scale. You see a lot of that in pipes, water pipes, and our chemistry helps prevent that. And all the way to agriculture, where our product is put into the fertilizer packages to reduce the amount of phosphates that are needed for the plants. And the reason that's important is the phosphate runoff that ends up happening leads to pretty disastrous aquatoxicity and eutrophication. The idea to reduce harm to the environment didn't just come from an eco-friendly mindset. It was actually born out of Chakrabarti's training as a physician. You know, when I look back at why I did this, right, I could have been a cancer doctor and been happy, you know, doing patients or whatever. But when I looked at the patients that had the most impact on me during that time, it was the patients that were affected by some environmental insult that they were completely uh, victims of. So as an example, I had a patient who worked in uh, mines, so silicosis and, and the sand that comes up from that, he ended up getting lung cancer because of that. But that was completely avoidable. So when you start looking at the world around us, the chemistry and the materials that we interact with, you realize that there's a much larger impact that it has on health than one appreciates just off the bat. So when I looked at my career and I said, hey, how do I want to create as much impact as possible? It's by creating an environment where people don't get sick. And the way to do that is to reimagine the way that we make the chemicals and materials we interact with every day. Solugen is removing the problem of carbon dioxide in the first stage of its manufacturing process. Chakrabarti and his team are cutting back on the emissions before they enter the atmosphere. If more companies do this, then we could reach that goal of staying at 1.5 degrees. But as Nicholson said, climate change isn't a one-size-fits-all problem. It's going to require every tool we have available. That's all for our show today. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to World Changing Ideas wherever you find your podcasts. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Avery Miles. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Franz Bowen, Avery Miles, and Blake Odom. Editing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Editorial oversight from Deputy Editor Kate Davis and Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus. <laughs>